listening to a University of Kentucky College of Arts and Sciences podcast. On April 12, 2012, Professor Ron Eller gave the UK College of Arts and Sciences Distinguished Professor Lecture. Eller is a professor of history and has spent more than 40 years teaching and writing about the Appalachian region. His lecture, Seeking the Good Life in America, Lessons from the Appalachian Past, is presented here in its entirety. Opening remarks were given by the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, Mark Kornblue. Um, good evening. This is the uh, most delightful event each year in the College of Arts and Sciences when we honor our distinguished professor, which is the highest award that the College of Arts and Sciences awards. Tonight, it's our pleasure to honor Professor Ron Eller, and to, he's going to give us a talk. Um, Ron, as many of you know, comes originally from West Virginia. He's a descendant from eight generations of families in Appalachia and received his PhD from University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He's a specialist in Appalachian history and in public policy and economic development. Um, he's renowned throughout the university as a teacher. He spent 40, more than 40 years teaching and writing about Appalachia. He's sought, at the graduate level, he's sought after as an advisor and committee member for students both within and outside the Department of History. Many students um, across generations have chosen to work with Professor Eller precisely because of the high expectations that he sets, the goals that he pushes students to produce higher quality work and to excel in their careers. Um, Ron's the type of academic that's given an enormous amount of himself to the university and to the community. He served as director of our Appalachian uh, Center for 15 years, from 1985 to 2000, coordinating research and service programs in a wide range of Appalachian policy issues, from education to healthcare to economic development, civic leadership, and the environment. During his time as director, Ron helped garner more than $3 million in grants from the Mellon Foundation, the Pew Memorial Trust, the Kellogg and the Kellogg Foundation to support local leadership and civic life in Eastern Kentucky. He's published over 60 articles in book reviews, encyclopedic articles and reports during his career. And his books in particular have played a leading role in influencing the direction of Appalachian studies and in many ways remain the definitive works for anyone interested in the region. Miners, Millhands, and Mountaineers, the Industrialization of the Appalachian South, is the was the first synthetic study of industrialization and modernization of Appalachia from 1880 to the onset of the Great Depression. Ron's book tackled the tough issues surrounding the impact of development on culture, people, and landscape of the region. Miners was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in 1983 and was awarded the Thomas Wolfe Memorial Library Award and the Willis W. Weatherford Award for Appalachian Nonfiction. His, his latest book, Uneven Ground, Appalachia Since 1945, examines the impact of government programs and economic development on Appalachia since World War II shedding like and sparkling and sparking important conversation on a less, co on less covered part of Appalachian history. 
On even ground was the winner of the 2008 Willis D. Weatherford Award for the best publication about Appalachia given by the Appalachian Studies Association and winner of the 2009 V.O. Key Award for the best book on Southern politics by the Southern Political Science Association. Um, the list of service and awards that Ron's been, projects that Ron's been involved in could go on for a long time. Um, I'll mention a few. He served as chairman of the Governor's Kentucky Appalachian Task Force. He was the first chairman of the Kentucky Appalachian Commission and a member of the Sustainable Communities Task Force of President Clinton's Council on Sustainable Development. He's received two East Kentucky Leadership Foundation Special Awards and the University of Kentucky William E. Lyons Award for Outstanding uh, Public Service. Um, he runs appeared on innumerable television shows, uh, A&E biography, PBS documentaries, um, uh, and he's been interviewed around the country. He has um, his specialty, his, his scholarship has him in demand as speaker at university and colleges, and he ser often serves as a, civic, as a consultant for civic organizations around the country. Never one to shy from tough, controversial issues facing the region, his talk tonight, Seeking the Good Life in America, Lessons from the Appalachian Past, will undoubtedly set the bar for conversations on the future of that area. Along with the rest of America, Ron argues that Appalachia must undergo a deep transformation in values and behavior if we are to bridge the troubled waters of the region's environmental, social, and economic crisis building a broad social movement for transforming Appalachia and America in the 21st century is possible, he argues, if we learn the lessons of history. The lessons we can learn from this region are applicable across this country because, as Ron Eller reminds us, we are all Appalachian. We're especially honored today that uh, Ron tells me that this talk is part of the outline of his next book. So he, this is the first trial one of really his exciting new research. So please join me in welcoming Ron Ellis. Thank you, Mark. After that, it's going to be hard for me to follow up with much of anything, I'm afraid. Let me go ahead and, uh, and get started because I do have uh, quite a bit I want to share with you, uh, uh, with you this evening. Dean Cornblue, valued colleagues, students, and dear friends, I want to thank you for this extraordinary honor. For a first-generation college graduate from the mountains whose father had a sixth-grade education, and whose grandfather worked in the mines, this evening has very special meaning. As I frequently tell my students, I went to college expecting to get a better job. Instead, I got an education. That education has never stopped. That search for meaning has become a lifelong journey. Being a child of the 1960s, I've been driven to share my quest to understand the world with others. And being the grandson of a mountain preacher, I've been burdened by the responsibility to give unto others, to apply the lessons that I have learned to improving the condition of those who have not shared my good fortune. 
I've not always written for the academic community, but often for an audience outside the academy, including the public policymakers whose task it is to bring public resources to bear upon the challenges that confront my region and its people. When I went off to college, both of my grandfathers got me aside and warned me to be sure to read through them books and not to get above my raising. I hope I followed their advice on both accounts. For their support and patience during this journey, I want to thank my family, especially my wife, Jane. Over the last several months, I've pondered a number of topics for this presentation. I thought I might uphold the standards of contemporary scholarship and offer an academic critique of development theory and modernization. I considered a lecture on Appalachian stereotypes and their connection to power relationships in the region. And I thought about summarizing the historiographical literature on Appalachia that my work on the region over the past 40 years has helped to establish. Some of my most recent research examines the historical meaning of the commons in Appalachia and its implications for the future. But I've opted to go in a different direction this evening. I've always seen myself as a bit of a presentist historian, one with one foot in the past, one in the public policy arena of the present. I suppose that I'm a bit old-fashioned and that I believe an academic's responsibility in a democracy is to be a public intellectual, to do more than just write for other academics. As an historian, I have asked questions about the past because of my concern for the present and for my hope for the future. For me, the past is a window to the present and a guide forward. Most of my historical writing has documented the history of Appalachia from the Civil War to the present, the coming of railroads and company towns and coal mining and government programs. At the conclusion of most of my public lectures over the years, someone has always asked, so what is the answer to Appalachia's problems? What do we need to do to fix things? Of course, as those of you in this room know too well, there's no single answer to that question. The challenges facing Appalachia are complex and deeply rooted in our larger economy and society. But tonight I'm going to try and answer that question. What have I learned from my journey as an Appalachian historian about the burden of the past and the promise of the future? Not just in my region, but in the nation as a whole. Tonight, I want to speak to the people living in the mountains and to the rest of Americans as well. For as I noted in my last book, Appalachia is not a unique story in American life, but a mirror of our larger society. We're all Appalachians, as Mark indicated, and we can all learn from its history. In the four years since the publication of my last book, Uneven Ground, Little has changed to improve the economic conditions in Appalachia. If anything, inequalities in the region have gotten worse. 
Now, I should have tested this as a good teacher would have done beforehand. <coughs> this one works, okay. In Uneven Ground, I documented the failure of free market capitalism and Keynesian public development strategies since World War II to address the structural problems that have historically burdened Appalachia, specifically land distribution and use, political corruption, environmental exploitation, income inequality, and economic dependency. In spite of material improvements, persistent socioeconomic inequalities continue to make the region one of the poorest places in the United States. Rising unemployment and the absence of hope for the future still drive young people from rural areas. Tourism and second home construction in the Blue Ridge dropped off dramatically during the recent recession, and county budget cuts produced layoffs of teachers and public employees throughout the region. National media persisted in stereotyping Appalachia as a place of need, concentrating increasingly on the despair of the region's young people. As many of you will recall, in 2009, Diane Sawyer focused on the epidemic of drug abuse and the challenges facing the children of the mountains in her ABC documentary. While the following year, just a few days ago, uh, uh, two years ago, while the following year at the Upper Big Branch Mine in Southern West Virginia, 29 miners lost their lives as a result of corporate greed and regulatory neglect. A new kind of coal war has erupted in central Appalachia between environmentalists and the coal industry over mountaintop removal mining. In many ways, mountain communities are more intensely divided today than at any time since the labor conflicts of the early part of the 20th century. Even with the emergence of a more prosperous new Appalachia in some middle-class growth centers across the region, rural communities and working-class families continue to suffer from economic and social decline. Along with the rest of America, the gap between the rich and the poor keeps on growing in Appalachia. And in the mountains, that gap is made even more apparent by the physical destruction of the land itself. Once again, Appalachians find themselves at a crossroads. Do we follow the patterns of the past and continue to struggle toward the values of mainstream America while witnessing the slow death of our culture and landscape? Or do we draw from the lessons of history and find an alternative path to a new economy, one that provides an adequate and meaningful livelihood for all of our people and a balanced relationship to the environment around us? Do we accept the assumptions of economic development that have dominated American life for the last century and that have produced the challenges that we face today? Or do we reconsider the meaning of the good life and build an economy and society around a different set of values. Earlier in our history, we witnessed two great transitions that promised progress and prosperity for the region. I have written about both of these. First, at the turn of the 20th century, when industrialization came to the mountains, and then after World War II, when government programs promised to bring Appalachia 
into a great society. As I've argued elsewhere, neither unregulated free market growth nor federal social engineering has eliminated the persistent problems of the region. This is because Appalachia's problems are systemic and reform policies to uplift the region's people and integrate the region's economy into the mainstream have failed to address these systemic problems. Our current social and environmental challenges have not, uh, will not yield to the incremental reform politics of the past century if we approach them with the same assumptions that have guided past efforts. The problems facing Appalachia today require a fundamental rethinking <clears throat> of our political economy and a deeper reexamination of our values and culture. These challenges, of course, are not limited to Appalachia. <clears throat> a growing number of our deepest thinkers, economists, scientists, historians, philosophers worldwide, have questioned the direction of contemporary life and challenged the ethics and sustainability of consumer capitalism. Writers such as Bill McKibben, Gus Spaeth, David Corton, Wendell Berry, Jim Wallace, David Shy, and a host of others have called for a kind of cultural revolution that redefines our economy, society, civic life, and relationship to the natural world. At the heart of the systemic changes that must occur, they suggest, if we are to avoid environmental catastrophe, global violence, and widespread despair, is a new consciousness, or as Gus Spaeth has argued, a reorientation of what society values and prizes most highly. These contemporary critics call for a cultural turn away from a received value system in which progress equals growth at any cost, where wealth is only measured in terms of money, where people and communities are expandable, and in which greed is good. These writers don't ignore the need for political action and institutional change, but they recognize that changing public policy and structures in our time requires a more radical transformation of our values and culture, deep change that stirs people to act in both private and public ways. This transformational change, notes economist David Corton, requires the building of a powerful social movement based upon a shared understanding of the roots of the problem and a shared vision of the path to its resolution. Distinguishing between deep ideological change within the dominant culture and changing the behavior of the poor themselves separates these social prophets from other critics. Libertarian Charles Murray, for example, has recently blamed America's coming apart, as he's labeled it, on the degeneration of working class culture from the supposed founding virtues of hard work, marriage, and religion. Murray blames the working poor themselves for rising unemployment, neighborhood crime, and illegitimacy. Ironically, the assumptions about culture in Murray's analysis are not far removed from that of, sociology, of sociolo socialist excuse me, Michael Harrington 50 years ago, whose 1962 book, The Other America, 
helped to rediscover American poverty and to rediscover Appalachia. For Harrington, America's poor in general, and Appalachia in particular, constituted a nation within a nation and represented a different way of life from the, that of the middle-class mainstream. Both authors base their views on the idea of a culture of poverty and assume that it is the values of the poor that are deficient. Harrington's arguments led to much of the social engineering associated with the war on poverty. Murray's would rely more on individual conversion to save the poor. He certainly assumes that there is nothing fundamentally wrong with the system. It's the poor and working classes that must change their values and expectations to match those of the more successful. But crime, drug abuse, intolerance, laziness, illegitimacy, and family violence are not confined to the poor. If anything, educated elites have a special responsibility for setting cultural norms as a result of their greater access to media, education, the church, and other institutions of social power. If our current system has left us in a social, economic, political, and environmental wasteland, it's not a crisis of a single class or region, but a problem that cuts across traditional divisions of class, race, and gender. It is culturally systemic. History tells us that transformational change seldom comes from within institutions of power. Real change comes from a broad-based social movement grounded on a shared understanding of the issues and the common vision of a path forward. Populism, the civil rights movement, the movement for gendered equality all began with a common identity and a familiar history including the telling of cultural stories that differed from the dominant stories being told by the powerful, and with a willingness to act locally before linking with others to affect national political change. Permanent change in the political and economic structures that limit us is contingent upon a cultural transformation that begins locally and unites people across lines around a new consciousness. Appalachia has much to contribute to this growing global conversation about a new economy and a new social consciousness. Indeed, the future of the region depends not so much upon any short-term fix, but upon the outcome of that broader conversation. Over a century of experience with unfettered markets, corporate greed, land and labor exploitation, consumerism, and unbalanced growth has left a burned out shell of a once verdant place and a proud people. Re-empowering Appalachia will require a fundamental change in our deepest assumptions. One of the central themes that emerges from our history, for example, is the fallacy of the prevailing assumption that economic growth equals progress. No economic value is more pervasive in our contemporary culture today but at least since the late 19th century, it's been an illusion in the mountains that simply expanding markets and building infrastructure and extracting natural resources produces development. In Appalachia, economic growth produced material wealth for some, both insiders and outsiders, 
but it also fueled poverty and inequality within the region and between Appalachia and the rest of the nation. An increasing number of global economists have begun to question the importance of growth to economic security and happiness. And they have begun to define wealth as more than just gross domestic product, GDP. If we define the goals of development more broadly as increasing the well-being, happiness, security, health, and democratic traditions of a place, certainly the growth-based market economy has failed to bring development to Appalachia. Building a future upon the failed assumptions of the past will only perpetuate policies that have failed in the past and that are destructive to the land, to community, and to democratic relationships. The history of Appalachia, therefore, informs our emerging national and regional conversations about what Robert Bella once called our habits of the heart. And the lessons that, uh, that uh, lessons of that past provide insight for building a new society and a, political e and a new political economy in the mountains. Over the last four decades, Appalachian scholars have gathered important lessons uh, from the region's historic journey that should provide a framework for these conversations. First, Appalachia is not the other America. The other America that the national stereotypes would have us believe, but instead it may be more of a bellwether to the challenges facing our larger society. Despite more than a century of media stereotyping the mountains as a strange land inhabited by a peculiar people, Appalachia has consistently reflected the struggles, the trends, the value conflicts of the larger society, sometimes with agonizing intensity. For over a century, the stereotypes created about Appalachia have obscured the reality of political and economic life in the region and have hidden the exploitation of land and people for the benefit of the rest of the country and for the enrichment of the few. Popular stereotypes have tended to blame the land or to blame the culture of Appalachia for regional disparities. But the real uneven ground of Appalachia has been the consequence of structural inequalities based on class, race, and gender, and on political corruption, land abuse, and greed. Second, as I stated earlier, growth and development are not the same thing. Despite more than a century of equating any change in the name of modernization with progress. Appalachia has experienced growth without development that has left the region modernized and altered but without the improved public resources needed to support new lifestyles. Job creation does not necessarily produce security, wealth, and happiness. Increased consumption doesn't equal economic independence, and more consumption doesn't necessarily produce meaning in life. Third, urban and national models of growth are not always appropriate for rural places. The consolidation of public services in one place can cause the decline and neglect of other places. Public resources, uh, resource expenditures in Appalachia have uh, nurtured the development of some growth centers in the mountains, Pikeville, 
uh, Hazard, uh, London Corbin area, for example, here in Kentucky. Uh, has nurtured, when I get off my, my point here, public resource expenditures in Appalachia have nurtured the development of some growth centers in the mountains, but that strategy has facilitated the decline of many rural and remote communities. Rural places usually play catch-up to urban trends, and Appalachia has often tried to copy strategies that have already been abandoned by urban areas. The sad failure of industrial recruitment strategies and the disappointing outcomes of school consolidation are but two examples. Fourth, land use matters. Extractive economies tend to produce social and economic inequality, environmental destruction, and short-term growth rather than sustainable incomes and lifestyles. Wherever extractive economies have dominated around the world, they have produced inequality. Extractive economies often confine an area to single industry dependence and inhibit diversification. Extractive economies and the extractive elites who thrive upon them are inconsistent with long-term thinking. Fifth, Environment and culture are inextricably connected. How we use the land affects how we see ourselves, how we relate to each other, the values that we pass on to our children, and the meanings that we give to life. Rich, vibrant landscapes can give us hope and confidence for tomorrow. Desolate landscapes limit future possibilities and can leave us constrained by hopelessness and despair. Preserving the Appalachian biosphere is the, at the very core of preserving an Appalachian identity for our children's future. Sixth, development is a political act that requires democratic community engagement and open public debate. It doesn't just happen. Effective civic leadership involves thinking beyond self-interest and special interest politics. Civic leadership requires us to act collectively and to think creatively. Good leadership learns from the past and uses the lessons of the past to embrace change. Blindly implementing the policies that have failed in the past will produce the same failed outcomes. And finally, community-based economies produce more sustainable and equitable development than those based solely on national and global market priorities. Local and regional markets are important because they foster diversity. Disperse wealth more evenly, foster cultural pride and connection to place, encourage cooperation, creativity, and entrepreneurship, and provide greater freedom from the vagaries of international crises. As Appalachia enters another critical period of transition, the lessons of its past, and I've listed just seven, suggest the need for fundamental change, not just in public policy, but in the values and priorities that shape the way we understand the land, the way we conceive our economy, and what we expect from our democracy. History tells us how to avoid the mistakes of the past, 
but it also teaches us that fundamental value change is possible and that we need only to look at some of our own cultural stories for alternative traditions. For too long, Appalachians have been branded as deficient and backward by powerful national stories that define the good life in terms of material wealth and consumption. For too long, we have ignored or rejected values within our own communities that have resisted rampant individualism, greed, and inequality. Indeed, throughout our history as a nation and a region, countervailing value systems have always competed for control of our institutions and economy. Perhaps it's time for us to construct new cultural stories that redefine the good life for our times, stories based upon a kind of new old value system, as Jim Wallace calls it, that neither romanticizes the past nor ignores the present. One of those stories, for example, would redefine the meaning of land in the mountains and reclaim a land ethic that survived among some residents of the region even while other natives and outsiders accumulated and abused the land for private gain. Indeed, one of the dominant images of Appalachia is that of a region of a rich land inhabited by a poor people, a place which gave up its natural wealth to careless exploitation and greed. This has certainly been one story. But there has always been an alternative story in the mountains that has tied individuals to place and that has connected human happiness and survival to the <coughs> ecosystem around them. Individualism and the market economy have always been buffeted in the region by opposing values of family survival, collectivity, and spirituality. Throughout much of the 19th century, private land ownership was frequently constrained by collective practice of the commons in which community use of the woodlands was regulated for mutual benefit. The idea of the commons in Appalachia has survived into the late 20th century, as historian Catherine Newfont recently argued, and it continues to influence attitudes today toward water quality and forest management. Even our religious traditions in the mountains, which have too often been replaced by a more modern gospel of wealth, call upon us to rethink our relationship to the land. My preacher grandfather would proudly have quoted Leviticus 25:23, that the land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. With me you are but aliens and tenants. Throughout the land that you hold, you shall provide for the redemption of the land. Not only is the land not ours to possess and destroy, but as tenants, we have a special responsibility to care for God's land. Reclaiming a more appropriate land ethic, a new story about the land, then will require us to rekindle old conversations about land ownership, the environment, community health. It will demand that we accept personal responsibility for the land and that we think beyond the extractive economies of the past and toward an economy that returns value to the land 
and services local needs rather than far off investors. In the short term, a new land ethic would demand the abolition of the controversial practice of surface mining, including the radically destructive application of mountaintop removal. But in the long run, it would force us to reconsider how we alter the land for housing, public buildings, retail services, and other forms of development as well. Now, whether out of concern for global climate change, the loss of species habitat, or the health of those who live in communities polluted by mining, mountaintop removal is not ethical. Nor is the practice necessary in a new regional or national economy. It's just cheaper if one ignores external costs to people and to the environment. With the decline of easily accessible coal reserves in Appalachia and rising opposition to coal-fired electric generating facilities across the nation, the consumption of coal for electricity has dropped from over 50% to 40% of our energy needs in the United States in the past decade alone. Employment in the mountains from coal has declined steadily over the last five decades. And it is anticipated that coal production in central Appalachia will decline by 70% in the next eight years. 70%. It simply does not make economic sense to build a future on such an environmentally destructive and declining industry. Initially, a land ethic might actually sustain existing jobs in underground mines while the nation moves increasingly to other sources of energy. But ultimately, the region must move away from its primary dependence upon an extractive economy. Effective land stewardship does not mean, however, that we abandon our use of the land for productive purposes. Only that we consider, excuse me, that we conceive of job creation in new and different kinds of ways. As community-based organizations throughout Appalachia have demonstrated in recent years, land, mountain land, can become the source of new and greener jobs. Managing the forests for sustainable production and carbon recovery, for uh, eco-sensitive recreation, and for localized energy production, and I want to emphasize the word localized, energy production, in the form of wind, solar, biofuel, hydro, and other sources of power for local homes <coughs> and local businesses. A new expansion of national forests in the region, for example, something that I've been calling for for several years. A new expansion of national forests in the region <coughs> after the pattern established earlier in the 20th century would open large areas of the coal fields to alternative economic development as it has done in non-coal areas of Appalachia. In addition, federal acquisition of mountaintop removal sites would create reforestation and restoration jobs for workers displaced by the loss of surface mining. These publicly owned lands could be developed as a new Appalachian Commons 
managed for multiple use purposes and leased to private entrepreneurs for alternative energy production, agriculture, timber, recreation, and other small businesses where appropriate. Indeed, developing a new philosophy of land use will also encourage us to reconsider the goals and purpose of the economy itself. For too long, Appalachians, like other Americans, have measured economic success by the amount of timber cut, coal mined, or products manufactured for distant markets, our own regional equivalent of GDP. We've measured social success in financial terms. Those with the most money have the most power, and the rest of us struggle to become good consumers because Wall Street has convinced us that more things will make us happy. This system has rewarded a few in the mountains, but for large numbers of people it has produced hardship and disappointment. Psychologists now tell us that the growth-centered economy has contributed to rising unhappiness and stress across America. It should not surprise us at all that Appalachia suffers from one of the highest rates of prescription drug dependency, anxiety, distrust, and depression in the country. Despite the constant claims of political and corporate leaders that we just need more growth, an economy that fails to create sustainable jobs, that hollows out communities, that ravages the environment and leaves residents dependent upon a manufactured consumerism, fails in its fundamental goal of providing for the well-being and happiness of its people. Redefining the goals of the economy more broadly to meet local and regional needs rather than market demands of distant places would involve a major paradigm shift. Rather than recruiting outside industries to manufacture and ship widgets to China, an agenda for a new Appalachian economy might seek to revive old regional and local markets in which urban centers and rim communities become the consumers of goods and services produced in nearby rural areas. Food, ornamentals, recreation, entertainment, cultural amenities, digital services, and many others. Such a community-based economy would not only provide greater security for families and encourage collaboration and entrepreneurship, revive community uh, pride, but it would also integrate nearby urban places with rural mountain communities in ways that would liberate both communities from the destructive competition of a growth-focused economy. In such a new economy, the resources of government and educational institutions, moreover, would be called upon to support local markets, small businesses, and worker-owned enterprises rather than the corporate-favored public expenditures designed for the global marketplace. Economic policy that supported stronger local and regional markets would also encourage the decentralization of education and health services, putting schools and health providers back into smaller communities, especially rural communities, where they provide not only jobs, but community cohesion, cooperation, identity, and shared responsibility. Finally, 
Rethinking the nature of our economy and redefining our relationship to the environment will force us to reconsider our civic life and our responsibilities to each other. To a great degree, the crisis of our economy and environment is a crisis of our democracy. By accepting the ideas of progress manufactured on Wall Street and Main Street, by individuals, corporations, and institutions that had much to gain from growth and consumption, we abandoned some of our own democratic traditions that fostered cooperation, leveling, responsibility to our neighbors and to future generations. By giving over to values of individualism, self-interest, power, and status, we allowed those who controlled the economy to shape the direction of public life and to narrow the goals for our commonwealth. To paraphrase Franklin Roosevelt, reclaiming that democratic tradition will require the engagement of all of us in an effort to apply social values that are more noble than mere money-making. Once again, our own stories can provide us with models to counter the dominant stories of mainstream culture and powerful media. For every story of private greed and public corruption in Appalachian history, there are stories of positive human values, the importance of family loyalty and survival, the disparagement of position, respect for diversity, compassion, fairness, equality, human dignity, social justice, and community. Such values can be found in the farm families of the 19th century who shared labor and the products of the land so that everyone in the community could survive, in the quiet endurance of black and white abolitionists who struggled to get slaves to freedom on the Underground Railroad in the mountains, and in the solidarity of mine workers who fought for better working conditions and civil rights in early 20th century mine wars. These values drove hundreds of young people to fight poverty and injustice in the war on poverty. They inspired Uncle Dan Gibson, a mountain preacher, to organize his neighbors against the encroachment of strip miners at the head of the hollow. They motivated Eula Hall, a young welfare mother, to challenge discrimination by local education authorities and to establish a primary health clinic in her rural community. They moved disabled minors and their families to confront state and federal authorities in order to gain benefits for black lung disease. And they inspired Marie Cirillo, a former nun, to spend her life organizing health clinics, educational programs, and land trusts in a remote and impoverished Tennessee mountain valley. The stories that we tell about ourselves can give us a vision for the kind of community we want to become. And building a vision of alternative possibilities is critical if we desire broad-based systemic change. Recognizing our own history and exchanging false stories for real stories nurtures pride and identity. It's a first step, but that's not enough. Understanding our history must lead to a conversation about what we want to become as a people. As the prophets have said, 
Where there is no vision, the people perish. Regaining control of our cultural stories can generate hope that an alternative future is possible, even in Appalachia. Developing such a vision will require us to move beyond a philosophy, I think, that says it's all about me, to a play, uh, to, and to replace it with one that says we're in it together. It will require us to think collectively to create networks of existing organizations committed to fundamental value change and to nurture new democratic leadership that encourages creativity and confidence for the future. Moving to a culture of mutual responsibility will help us open up our civic processes in order to expand diversity, transparency, and participation. Only then can we confront the complex structural challenges of an extractive economy that has drained the region of its physical and human wealth and, and of an extractive political system that has benefited the few at the expense of the many. There's little prospect for another national war on poverty or a new federal initiative designed to address the regional problems of Appalachia. So what do we do? Those who care about the mountains and about mountain people must have the courage to challenge the cultural assumptions both within and outside of the region that have gotten us to this point. We must have the fortitude to offer a new vision of the possibilities for a truly new Appalachia, one that provides an adequate and meaningful life for all Appalachians in a balanced and sustainable relationship to the land itself. We must change federal and state policies, transform local and regional economies, improve civic life, reform public institutions, and change our own behavior. But above all, using old and new communications tools, we must facilitate a regional conversation about values and how we collectively define the good life. History teaches us that transformation is possible, but without a deep realignment of our moral ecology, systemic change is not likely. I grew up in a culture where religion was taken seriously. Revivals were a part of the community landscape. Perhaps it's time for another kind of revival in the mountains one in which we all take a hard look at what we have become as a society and at the values that drive our lives. Salvation for the region is possible, but only if we reassess the meaning of the good life in America and if we expect our social institutions and our leaders to reflect deep democratic values. There's an old Appalachian story that I want to end with. There's an old Appalachian story that is retold in the late Jim Wayne Miller's classic poem, The Briar Sermon. <clears throat> For those of you too young to remember, out migrants from Appalachia were often referred to as briar hoppers by their northern neighbors. I'll paraphrase Jim's poem. One day the briar is called to preach on the street corner in front of the Green Stamp Redemption store. Again, for you young people. 
The Green Stamp Redemption Store was uh, our 1950s and 60s version of the Walmart. <laughs> you'd, get, you'd go to the grocery store and you'd get little stamps and put them in this book. And when you saved enough books, you could go to the Redemption Store and get all kinds of good consumer products. One day, the Briars called to preach on the street corner in front of the Green Stamp Redemption Store. Well, let me tell you about the Brown Boys, the Briar says. <clears throat> Feller over close to where I live wanted some little cedar trees dug up and planted in a row down beside of his house. He tried to hire the Johnson Boys, his neighbors, but they were too scared to do it, didn't believe in digging up cedar trees. They'd always heard that, well, you'd die whenever the trees got tall enough for their shadow to cover your grave. Get somebody else, they said. Get old Jim Brown and Tom Brown. They're educated. Don't believe in nothing. <laughs> well, I'm educated, the briar says, but not like the brown boys. There's something that I believe in. You must be born again. Now, the sermon goes on from there. Appalachia, if it is to survive as anything more than a memory, if it is to be remembered as anything more than a place of poverty, destruction, and injustice, must be born again. Nurtured by those who value family loyalty and shared prosperity, who respect diversity, compassion, fairness, equality, human dignity, social justice, and community. It must become a symbol to the rest of the nation that change is possible. But only if we abandon some of our deepest assumptions and only if we recover some of our most neglected traditions. Thank you. Thanks for listening, and thanks to the College of Arts and Sciences, the Appalachian Center, and the Department of History for making this podcast possible. 